Chapter 42 of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 42 Behind the Fiddle. It is vain for any man to say that in the deepest depths of woe he can receive no scrap of comfort from the tenderness of others. Words may help him very little. Commonplace exhortations are a weariness to the worn-out soul. He lays at the bottom of his own distress and does not want it probed or touched. But gradually a little light and warmth steal through the darkness, not direct from heaven alone, but reflected from kind eyes and hearts. He is not alone in the world, although he ever must be lonely, and the sense of other life than his restores him slowly to his own. After all the kindness shown me, and the goodwill wholly undeserved, I felt ashamed to be so swallowed up in my own sorrow. Some indulgence I might claim from people of kindly nature on the ground that it was not sorrow only, but dark mystery and doubt, and even some sense of black disgrace, which had robbed me of my proper vigor and due power of manhood, and it is more than likely that the long and wasting illness, from which I had not yet quite recovered, still impaired the force and tone of mind as well as body. But I do not want to make excuses, as people nearly always say in the very breath they make them with, only I was now resolved that no more should be needed. On the Monday I drove Spanker home, which was a great delight to him, and to me as well, for the world looked brighter when my face was set to fight it, or rather I should say to fight that vile and wicked part of it, which had robbed me of my just claim to a happy, though humble, place in it. In my breast pocket I carried the book containing my wife's last words to me, for my good Aunt Parslow had kindly stitched it in a white kid glove or a pair of them, which had been white in their early days, and in the pocket on the other side I carried fifty pounds in banknotes so as to be able to start well and procure better judgment than my own, if it should appear advisable. But about that I was not sure as yet, being very loath to ask any other man's opinion, however old he might be, about my pretty kitty. It was now the longest day, which was the most excellent and perfect time of year, in at least three years out of every four. Sometimes there arises a strong hot June, but scarcely more than once in twenty summers, and then, before the days come to their turn, leaves are getting flabby and grass is overripe, and the petals of the wild rose lie in the ditch, and the blossom of the wheat has dropped its little quivery bee's wing. More often there has been a black Pentecost, a May of lowering skies and blight with every animal's coat put in the wrong way on his back, and then a June of shrink and shiver, without a fair flower in the garden, and with the hedgerows full of black caterpillars, and every man flaps himself with his arms like a cock when he springs up to crow but the hedger and the ditcher has nothing to crow at, and is too hoarse to do it if he had. But now we had a very fair midsummer, neither too hot nor too cold, and the air was not only fresh but soft, and full of sweet yet invigorating smells. At the top of every hill one seemed to sniff the rich calm of the valley, and again in the valley to feel the crisp air of the hill coming down for a change of mood. There was nothing to make much fuss about it in the way of striking scenery, but a pretty peep could be had at almost every turn of traveling, where green leaves softened the brilliant sky and sheep and cattle and quiet pastures showed that they accepted life as if it were a blessing. 
but I found my uncle regarding life from a very different point of view. He had brought all his strawberry pickers in at three o'clock that morning to make the great hit of the summer, as he hoped, in the Monday forenoon market. At six a.m. he had sent off about five hundredweight of prime fruit, all in pound punnets with dewy leaves as fresh as the daybreak and as bright as the sun before it leaves off blushing. But ere he could put one upon his stand, one hundred and twenty tons of French stuff, which had been discharged the night before, were running, like a flood from some horse-knackers in every alley of the market. This refuse was offered by the bucketful at a penny a pound, which was too much for it, a dumpy and flabby and slimy mass fit for children to make dirt pies of. Of course the good buyers would not look at it, for no man could put it in his window. But the British public could put it in their stomachs, which is not at all a choice receptacle, and the mere fact of its presence took the shine out of all fair English fruit. Uncle Corney's choice presidents and Dr. Hogg's, as good as if they leapt from stalk to lip, became jam for the juggernaut of free trade, and he was left lamenting as well as swearing very hard. Whenever he had used strong language, however well justified by international law, he was apt to show less of true penitence than of anger with the world that had made him do it. Being a righteous man, he always felt ashamed, but he was never known to retract an expression, though he often declared that his words had been too weak, and he wished that he had said what he was charged with saying. But Celsi Bill told me that he had been just awful, and they were expecting beer all round, as a token of remorse. Said it would sack every son of a gun of us. Never knowed him to say that without sending Can out by and by. Ah, oh, he's a just man, Master Kit, if ever was one. Glad to see you, Kit, said my uncle, who was getting with the aid of a pipe into his right mind. You are looking ever so much better, my boy. Can't return the compliment, I fear. The fact is, I've been a little put out, though I never lost my temper, as most people would have done. Fearful smash this morning at the garden. But all the poor fellows did their very best, and it would not be fair to punish them. They have been hard at it ever since three o'clock. You might take the four-gallon can, if you like, just to show them that you are come home again and I dare say you'll be glad of a glass yourself, for the roads are getting dusty. You can come and talk to me when you've been round. Only half a pint each for the women, mind. It would never do to get them into bad habits, unless any of them has a baby. When I had discharged that little duty, I told him of all that my aunt had said, and showed him the message to me in the book, if indeed it could be called a message. He shook his head very wisely over this, and told me that he must think about it, for he could not at present see the meaning of it, but he saw that it altered his opinion of the case. "'You have been up to the cottage already, I see,' he continued as I sat quietly after vainly searching once more the columns of his paper, The Standard, as I daily did. "'You will never find any notice there, my boy, nor in any other paper. It is the blackest puzzle I ever came across.' and this only makes it the blacker. Mother Bull has come back. He should have said, the Honorable Mrs. Bullrag Fairthorne. I was told so yesterday by that good woman who came down when you were so ill. You know that woman, I mean, Mrs. Wilcox? She was down here yesterday to ask for you and was very sorry not to find you. 
She said that if Mother Bull had not been away, she could have sworn that it was all her doing, but now she doubts whether she knew anything about it. For when she does a thing, she always does it by herself and never trusts anyone with her wicked works. Mrs. Wilcox has not heard a word from your wife, as I need not tell you, but she flies in a fury at the smallest hint that there can be any fault on her part. She says that poor Kitty would never plot anything, even if she wished it. Her mind is too simple, and she could never carry out any plan requiring sharp management. I asked her what she thought of it all, and she could think of nothing at all worth speaking of, only that there is something we don't know, which I could have told her without walking a mile. But I think it might do you good to go and see her, and it would comfort you at any rate, for she holds all your own opinions. And she said one thing which I thought right, and sharper than I had expected, for it never had occurred to me, that you should take in one of those scientific journals, which give an account of discoveries and all that, so as to find out, if you can, where Professor Fairthorne is. How can that do any good? I asked. He had sailed at least ten days before I was forsaken, and while we were down at Baycliffe, the telegram from Falmouth proved all that. That is clear enough, and of course he cannot help us while he is far away at sea. But for all that we are bound to let him know, if there should be any chance. You would write to him, or write at him, if his daughter was dead, and it is very much the same case now. Uncle Corney, you have the most cold-blooded way sometimes, though you never mean it. Certainly I am bound to let him know, if I can, and I ought to have thought of it before, but he has given us little of his company. I will go and see Mrs. Wilcox tomorrow, if only to find out what paper to get, for she will know what they used to take in and I shall find out what is going on up there, though I don't see how it will help me much. When that dog was stolen from Miss Culpepper, said my uncle, without meaning any harm, by some rogue in London, what did she do? Why, she offered a reward at once, and sent posters right and left. And what was the result? Why, the dog came back almost before she had time to miss him. But if he came back without any reward, what could the reward have to do with it? "'How do you know that no reward was paid?' "'My uncle seemed quite to look suspicious, "'but perhaps it was my conscience that made him do it. "'We can't tell what happened between them up there.' "'Certainly not,' I replied with haste. "'But I don't like talking about a dog in the same breath with my kitty.' "'I do not mean to annoy you, Kit,' he answered very humbly, "'although the poor lady may have felt it bitterly in her little way.' All I meant was that we might have offered a large reward for any information. It could have done no harm, you know, and it might have come to Kitty's ears and inclined her to come back to us. Women are so glad to save expense. How can you understand such things, as if I could bear to fetch my wife home by jingling a purse before the world? If she won't come back without that, she had better... she had better almost stay away... Very well, I can understand your feelings, and very likely I should have the same. You are like me, Kit, in many things, although a deal more obstinate. My uncle was fond of saying this, but it always took my breath away from the sublimity of his self-ignorance. It was like an oak tree bidding an osier not to be so gnarled and stiff. Now remember one thing, he went on as he saw me smiling just a little. 
In spite of your stubbornness, you shall obey me, or I will know the reason why. You have tried what good hard work would do, and it has done you more harm than good, because your mind has not been in it, and you have only been fretting at every stroke, though you stuck to it like a Breton. Today you are twice the man because you have had a little change, and seen a little of a different life, and allowed yourself to speak more freely of your sad affairs instead of snapping at everyone who mentioned them. Henceforth you shall never do more than eight hours' work in these gardens in one day. I mean, of course, all by yourself. For sixteen hours every day you have avoided everyone and carried on work, work, all alone, as if you never meant to speak again. I am pretty tough, but it would have killed me, although I am no chatterbox. And it has gone some way towards killing you. I left you to your own foolish plan because of your confounded obstinacy, but now I will try to be as stubborn myself. I will come after you with my supplejack, unless you give me your word on this. And another thing you must bear in mind. You have taken your good aunt's money for a particular purpose, and you will have had it on false pretenses if you go on thus. I intend to use it for what she meant. I would never have taken it otherwise. You shall not complain of my sticking too close, but rather of my absence. But I do not draw my weekly money from you unless I have done a good week's work. Tomorrow I shall do very little because I am going to London. Tonight I shall work for an hour or two because I have a job to finish, and I will look in when you are having your last pipe. There was every promise of a fruitful season, though not without plenty to grumble at, for I never knew a season good all round, such as more favored countries have. After getting myself into working trim, I left my lonely little dwelling with the front door so arranged so that anyone who knew the trick could enter without knocking, and in the kitchen fireplace, for I never use the parlor now, I left a little coke alight, so that it would smolder on for hours, and could soon, with the aid of wood and coal, be nursed into glow enough to boil the kettle, which stood ready upon the hob, for I always fancied when I went to work that I might find my wife when I should come home, making it a home for me once more, and listening to the singing of the kettle, and I left the lane door unfastened too, that she might have no trouble to get in. Somehow or other, I seemed to feel that something strange would befall me that night, but I went about my work as usual. I had a large peach tree to go over for the second time that season, fetching every shoot into place, checking or sometimes cutting out the overcourse and sappy growth, nipping every blistered leaf, removing the fruit where it grew too thick or had no chance of swelling, and offering the many other trivial attentions without which fine fruit may not be. And outside the border on the gravel walk I had the garden engine full of water for the nightly bath, which fruit and foliage in warm weather love as much as vermin hated. The sun had been down for an hour or more, and the dusk was deepening into night, and I was just at the point of leaving off for fear of hammering the wrong sort of nail, when I heard a little sound— like the scraping of a twig, and turning my head without any great hurry, beheld, as distinctly as I see this paper, the face of a man looking steadfastly at me. It was a large and solid face, as calm and unmoved as the full moon appears rising out of the haze on a fine summer night. I could see no hat above the face, nor any human figure below it, 
only a face looking through a gap in a clipped arbor vito tree, about fifteen yards from where I stood. It was gazing at me quite serenely, and as if I were hardly worth the trouble. Although all the time in my long distress I had wholly lost the sense of fear, bodily fear, I mean, and nervous trembling, such as brave men have, this had surprised me more than once. Things that used to make me jump had not the least effect on me. The reason was simply that my life was not of the smallest value to me, and I wondered that I was not frightened now because I knew that I ought to be. Without even taking my hammer up, I leapt across the border to seize this fellow, but my foot caught on something, and down I went. A heavy garden line had been left, stretched along by one of our men, who had been making up the edge that day. I knew it was there, but had not thought of it in my hurry, and now I was lame in both knees for a minute, for the shock had been very violent. At first I thought that my left leg was broken, but after a bit of rubbing it got better, and I hobbled towards the thuja tree, which had been clipped into the shape of a fiddle by Bill Tompkins. I dragged myself round it, but saw no one, nor even a footprint in the waning of the light. Neither was there any sound among the trees beyond it. Wondering greatly, and very angry with the fellow who had left the line there, I collected my tools with some difficulty and was obliged to leave the tree unsyringed. Then, as I went stiffly home, I thought of the fuss my kitty would have made to see me in that bleeding hobble, and if I was weak in my body through it, I fear that I was weaker still in mind. End of chapter 42